Friends, let us pray. Almighty God, our rock and our redeemer, we ask that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, that they would be acceptable unto you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, I wonder how good is our vision? Do we see things as they really are? When I was in late middle school, early high school somewhere, I happened to be at sort of a carnival type of fair setup once. It was one of those wonderful things that you would love to be at as a child. There were inflatable things of all sorts, like bouncy houses, but also like human foosball. And there was all sorts of food, popcorn, and Um, and candy, and all sorts of other wonderful things, games, and people, and fun everywhere. Face painting in some places, and there was, at this carnival, one person set up with an easel and a pad of paper who was doing caricatures of anyone who came up to him. There was a line for the caricature line, uh, for for the caricature artist, and as a young person, I happened to look over and thought, you know, I would like to get my caricature done. It was sort of a morbid curiosity to see what it was that I looked like when someone else looked at me. It was a very long line. I puzzled all of my friends who kept checking on me and bringing me different things to eat or telling me that I should go and and do other more fun things. But I sat, stood in that line for an hour and then two. And at the very end, when everybody else was cleaning up, this poor caricature artist stayed to do two or three more portraits. And I was the very last one to get one done. And then I got that caricature And I took a look, and I thought, this isn't me, except it also very much was me. And I have great news for you today. I have a picture of the caricature made of me in 2007. We're going to put this up on the screen. This is not what I looked like, except that's exactly what I looked like. It was a disconcerting thing because it's not a lie. There's not a thing about that picture that is untrue, and yet, It isn't exactly true at the same time. Caricatures are a strange thing. You can put that picture away now. I told them in the back, I said, you can put it up for a moment, but it's embarrassing, so don't leave it up too long. Caricatures are a strange thing because they're close to reality, and yet they aren't quite accurate. They're not right, but they're not wrong either. There's a fascinating little tidbit from history Perhaps you've heard of Boss Tweed in a history class or in just your light reading. Early America, over on the East Coast, he was the uh, political boss of an area. Very, well, very corrupted. Nobody liked him. He was taking money from everyone and everything, and the government especially. And there was a cartoonist uh, named Tom Nash who drew hundreds of cartoons lambasting Boss Tweed until eventually Boss Tweed was arrested He was arrested on charges of all the things that you'd expect him to be arrested on, money laundering and taking money and all of the rest. And in his arrest, they happened to give him a couple of privileges, including that he got to go home to his family every once in a while. Strange thing. Uh, And so it probably should be expected that once when he did that, he escaped, went down south to Mexico, and through Mexico, eventually finding his way on a boat to Spain. They were always one step behind him. And so they knew that he was on the boat to Spain, but they knew that the Americans who were trying to capture, recapture him wouldn't make it there, so they wired ahead to the Spanish police and said, Boss Tweed is on this boat. Please capture him for us. But they didn't know what Boss Tweed looked like, and they didn't send over a picture. And so instead, somebody pulled out a caricature 
of Boss Tweed from the newspaper, and they used that caricature, and they found him exactly. He had lost 125 pounds, and they still picked him out of the crowd, arrested him, and brought him home, where he uh, then spent the rest of his life in prison. The caricature of the man was good enough to distinguish who he was. And in fact, scientists have done some studies since then and discovered that we are better at distinguishing who a person is from a caricature of them than a picture of them. That if you are given a picture of someone and a caricature of someone and a crowd of people to pick from, you will sooner find the person whose caricature you have than whose picture you have. It's a bizarre thing. And the thinking is that we, when we take in information, we take in all of it. Our eyes, for instance, take in all of the details that we might see in the world around us, but we can't hang on to all of that information. So we pick out the things that are out of the ordinary. We go to the things that stand out or are highlighted in some way and remember just that. It's like compressing a file down so it takes up less space on your computer. We don't remember someone's whole face. We just remember that they have a big nose or small ears or a chin that sticks out too far. We hold in our heads caricatures of the people we know so that we can distinguish who they are. There's a caricature artist that I read this last week who explained a lot of people think that caricatures is about picking out someone's worst feature and then exaggerating it as far as you can. And that's wrong. Caricature is basically finding the truth and then you push the truth. It takes things that are true, and just puts them out of proportion, highlights some, and minimizes others. And so this is a helpful tool in some instances because it's built on truth, and so we can have something like a card catalog of people that we can recognize in a crowd, but it can be a challenge to us because sometimes we can mistake the caricature for reality, that we would remember what makes something stand out so much that we forget the whole of what it is. And so it can be helpful for finding faces in a crowd. It can be challenging because if the only thing you remember about someone is the strange things that stand out. It could be helpful if you have a library full of books and you remember this one is good and this one is bad. But then if you try to lend somebody that book and they say, what about this part? I didn't remember that at all. I just remembered what stood out. And it can be helpful for Scripture when we take in all of this information about who God is and who we are in this whole arc of the narrative. And yet it can be a challenge when we distill it down so far that we end up exaggerating some things and compressing others so we no longer have a handle on what the truth is. And so as we get into the meat of Matthew's Gospels, we move from introduction into the story it's about to take off, we get a collision of caricatures. And our job here is to sort through them, to see the truth that they are built on, that they are exaggerating from and out of proportion and recognizing what is true. And so Matthew begins here, chapter 3, when the story is about to take off and says, in that time, John the Baptist was out baptizing. There's no backstory given to John, not like Luke or the other Gospels do. We don't know anything about him, don't know that he was Jesus' cousin, don't know that Mary went to visit John the Baptist's mom. We just know that out of nowhere, there is a man named John the Baptist, and he, he's a prophet. Oh, he is a prophet's prophet. He couldn't be any more of a prophet if he tried. It honestly looks like he's trying really hard to be a prophet. 
He's out in the desert, out in the wilderness alone. He's wearing bizarre clothes, camels, hair, outfits, and he's eating the strangest things. It's like he took all of the weirdest things from all of the prophets up to that point and put them together so that he could be the prophet. He is a caricature of a prophet. And he has that classic prophetic message. Repent. God is coming and you want to be ready. He is a prophet in every sense of it. He's doing everything by the book, proclaiming repentance, inviting the crowds to come and be baptized in the water. And then, Matthew tells us, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees arrive. Oh, and John hits his groove. He reaches deep and he prophesies, he proclaims, he preaches a sermon with a passion that we can't hardly imagine. They say that pastors and preachers tend to have one sermon that we present in any number of different ways week after week. But when you get down to it, you boil it all down, it's just one message. This is John the Baptist's message. You can see from the force with which he brings out and he says to the to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you brood of vipers. Which is just delightful imagery. And even more delightful when you discover that in that time, our people's understanding of biology was a little bit different. And so the belief was that snakes were not hatched from eggs, they were born live, that a snake, a viper, would give birth to a whole brood full of small snakes. And they would eat their mother and then go out into the world. And so John the Baptist says, you brood of mother-eating snakes. Who told you you had to come and be baptized? You need to repent. And he doubles down because it seems he has this sense that their motivation isn't what it should be. They're not, in fact, here to repent. They don't think they need it. They are the sons of Abraham. But they'll be darned if anybody else out there looks more spiritual than they are. So if everyone else is lining up to get baptized, they probably don't need it, but they're going to be there anyway. They do everything that needs to be done to be the perfect children of Abraham, faithful believers. Every time the church is open, they're there. Volunteer positions, they fill them. They do everything they can because they know that they are God's chosen people. They are good and they are righteous and they are there. And John says, repent, you brood of mother-eating snakes. And John preaches fire to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, you trees, look at your fruit. The axe is at the root. Repent. I should pause for a moment to say that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are themselves a caricature in Matthew's gospel. In fact, in all of the Gospels, they are removed from the historical context, from the actual people who were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They stand in the Gospels more to represent an ideology than the actual people who lived in that time. And so it's important to recognize this, to make sure that the things that we feel and hear about the Pharisees and Sadducees don't bleed out into a description of all of the Jews of that time, and particularly because John the Baptist was a Jew, and the people being baptized were, and so was Jesus. It was a particular group of people that Matthew 
is molding and exaggerating in such a way as to present this conflict that will go throughout the whole of the gospel. The idea that the elite and the faithful, the always there churchgoer, the ones who imagine that they are already in the kingdom of God, we're going to have to get into the kingdom of God just like anybody else. That they who think that they're already there, who have already made it in terms of faith, are still going to have to repent and receive the good grace of God. This is the conflict that Jesus will carry on throughout the gospel. But John doesn't take it all the way here. John doesn't get us to a point where he says you have to come into the kingdom of heaven like anybody else. Doesn't take his message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the point where they get to also get in. He just stops with fire. And he says, by the way, the one who is coming is coming to judge with fire, a fire that will never be put out. And if we didn't know who Jesus was, if we were reading this gospel for the first time, if this is who John told us to expect, can you imagine what we would be anticipating? A mighty, powerful leader who sweeps in with fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit to destroy all evil and all evil doers. This is who John the Baptist sets us up to expect, and that is not what we get. Jesus shows up and says, please, will you baptize me? And John needs some convincing, but Jesus says and insists that he must be baptized. And he goes under the water and he comes up and there's a dove that flies down from the heavens. And there is a voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the son of God. Matthew points to it in the beginning, but this is the moment at which it is declared by none other than a voice from the heavens. And yet, as chapter 3 turns to 4, turns to 5, all the way to 11, we eventually come to a place where John the Baptist sends some of his followers to Jesus and says, are you the one that we were supposed to be waiting for? Here he seems very sure. He talks about the one who is coming, who is bringing fire. But as Jesus makes himself known, John has to stop and say, you don't look like the one I thought was coming. And Jesus told John the Baptist's followers, Go back and tell John what you have seen, that all of those who are being healed and that the poor are being blessed. This, Jesus says, is my ministry. Go and tell John. Now, John wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong at all. He just gave us a caricature, a caricature of a message, a caricature of the gospel, a caricature of the Old Testament. It is a cousin to the truth and not a contradiction. It is a caricature that takes one element and explodes it out of proportion. It needs to be balanced with the rest of the message and the ministry because Jesus does call us to repentance throughout the Gospels and he will come head to head with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and insist that they repent. But we discover that that message, that call to repentance, is what pulls us down to the water, into the waters of baptism where we find another message takes center stage, one that is highlighted above the judgment, which is that we are beloved children of God. 
The gospel news is out of proportion if it is just a message of judgment. It is one that needs to be in tension and balance with the grace of God. This is a challenge for John, for the disciples of Jesus, and for the church throughout the ages. How do we balance these two things? Because we have been given a gift, a good gift of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as if we have a spread on a table, a feast for all of the world, like when we meet at communion and we look forward to that heavenly feast, that heavenly banquet where we all come together. We have been given the feast already. And it would be a shame if all we did was just have the feast. It would be a shame if we didn't ask anybody if they were hungry, if they were hungry and wanted to come and feast. And it would be a cruel, cruel caricature if in a hungry world that knows desperately their need for God's grace and forgiveness, we brought hungry people in and we preached hunger to them and then we gave them a morsel and preached on hunger again. The gospel lives in tension, needs to be pulled back from the caricature that says only judgment, that leaves us in fear of God, but a judgment that leads to forgiveness, to grace, and to love, the beginning of the message and not the whole of it, one that takes us to the waters of baptism where we discover that God doesn't look at who is sons of Abraham. God can make children out of anyone, and God does. God washes it all away, discovers that who we are, at the core of who we are, who we really are, is a child of God, loved by God, forgiven by God today and always. The message of repentance moves to forgiveness in the good news of the gospel. And as the voice said to Jesus as he came up out of the water, this is my beloved son. And so Jesus spent his ministry proclaiming that we are all children of God, that we can all be part of the body of Christ. And then our translation, the voice from heaven said that Jesus makes them happy. I have to admit that as I was reading this passage, I had a visceral reaction to that. And I thought, what a banal way of saying this. Couldn't it have been translated to say, God, that this one, Jesus, gives me great joy or pleasure or delight. I had half a mind to change it and hope that nobody pulled out a Bible from the pew in front of them to double check and see that I'm meddling around with one translation or another, creating some sort of Frankenstein hodgepodge. But eventually, I didn't, because I thought I would try one thing first. That as a parent talks to their child, that perhaps there is something powerful in the simplicity. And so I took my son's head in my hands and I said, you make me happy. And that struck me to the core. We're not floating around in translation. It strikes to the simplicity of God's love for us. Friends, in baptism and in every day, 
God takes us in God's own hands and says, you make me happy. Who you are, who God has created you to be, makes God so happy. This is the good news of the gospel as it begins in the gospel of Matthew. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now, friends, we have an opportunity